You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Do me a favor, though, before we jump into the message, everyone who has a cell phone on you today, would you hold that up? Everybody's got a cell phone, all right? Some of you are literally looking down at your cell phone right now, not hearing me, but yeah, lift those up. So right now, 96% of American adults have a cell phone. It's most of us, right? And of American adults, 81% of American adults have a smartphone. Now, how many of you in the audience, you still have what we might call the dumb phone? You have a flip phone or a bar phone? Yeah, yeah. These people are super proud of their phones. Have you noticed that? Like people who have a flip phone or a bar phone, they are so proud of that. They've had it seven years. They've got a strong relationship with it, right? They've dropped it down the steps and it still works. It just keeps on going. I remember my first Nokia bar phone. I remember being so, like, I just thought it was so cool that you could play Snake on it. Like, you might remember that phone. Um, well, the, 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 the iPhone, which was not the only smartphone, one of the biggest, most successful smartphone launches. It was introduced in 2007. It was incredibly successful. It started to be picked up and used by many people. Over the next five years, smartphones became more and more popular, but a a really important moment happened in 2012, which by the way, that was eight years ago. Does that seem right? Eight years ago, 2012. Eight years ago in July of 2012, we crossed the threshold where 50% of Americans had a smartphone. 50%. And so in that moment, more than half. Now, we're up to 81% now, and so it's continued to climb. But when we crossed that threshold, that moment is really important because some things in our culture started to shift right then. And I'm going to show you a, when, when you had your phones out, I should have, should have had you silence them. Right? Right. Um, I want to show you this slide. This is, this is a slide on student depression. And right here is 2012. And you'll probably notice that the line for 18 to 25 year olds and 12 to 17 year olds, the incidences of depression started to go up right here right after we we crossed that tipping point of more than half of American adults having a smart phone. And what we've also found, and this chart shows us, that the more time we spend on our phones, the more likely it is for us to experience depression or some other emotional side effect. And so here's, uh, here's your Time on your screen and tracking with it uh, is those incidences of depression, okay? Uh, For those of you that are video gamers, this is video games, and it just seems like you can play all day and not be depressed, so good news for you guys, right? (laughs) That's what you're going to walk away with today, right? Pastor Daniel said you can play video games as long as you want, right? Um, Smartphones have become incredibly addictive because... The corporations that make the apps on our smartphones, the games, the social media, they are incentivized for us to be looking at our screens because they make their money usually on advertisements. And for them to get money from the company that they're selling the ad to, our eyes have to be looking at the screen. And so the more time we spend on our phones, the more money they make. 
And so they've engineered phones and notifications to constantly be dinging at us and constantly be drawing us back into our phones. And so that's the reason all these, all these apps, the first thing they ask you is, can we turn on mobile notifications? Can we enable mo- notifications? Because they know with those notifications, they'll be able to draw you back into the game or the app. And because we have been conditioned through those notifications, we, we unlock our phones, our smartphones, an incredible amount. Like, it's crazy, right? So much so that we've been conditioned and it's become habitual. And now, a third of the time that we unlock our phones, it's not because there was any notification or message. It's because it's just habit. And how many of you, you've unlocked your phone and you're like, what was I looking at? Why, why did I do that? Right? What, what was there a message? And it's just, it's just become habitual. It's just become, it's, it's, we're compulsive about it. And so a third of the time that we unlock our phones, and we unlock our phones a bunch, a third of the time there wasn't even a need. We're just doing it because there was a moment where we were bored, our brain was distracted, and our brain has become hardwired to jump into looking at our phones. And so if there's ever a moment of boredom in a line, you're going to pull out your phone. Now, smartphones do this. I haven't seen anybody in a line anywhere just like flip open their flip phone and look at it, right? (laughs) unless they got a text message or a call, and then they don't know what to do with it, right? But <laughs> so our smartphones, they, they have made this habitual and compulsive, okay? So much so that if there's a moment in my sermon that isn't incredibly engaging, you'll be tempted to open up Facebook or to switch from the Bible app over to Facebook. I know, because I'm your Facebook friend, and I've seen the stuff you listed on Marketplace during church services, <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> New research is showing that while smartphone usage leads possibly to more depression, the depression might also lead to more smartphone usage. So it becomes this constant vicious cycle that my phone is making more, me more anxious and depressed And so that makes me look at my phone more, which makes me more anxious and depressed. And and by the way, we're seeing this predominantly with young people because they're growing up in this digital age. I got my first phone, that one that had snake on it that was so cool, when I was like 20. That was 17 years ago. (laughs) Right? I cannot imagine if I had access to, to a phone when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. Because you know what was true about me when I was 13, 14, and 15? I was really worried about what everybody thought about me. And if I had this device that could constantly be telling me that other people were cooler than me, or constantly be portraying these images that everybody's life was awesome all the time, of course I'd be more anxious, less happy, more depressed. And so right now what's happening is we have these devices that have made us more connected than ever before. And listen, I love technology. We're not going to have a phone-burning ceremony at the end of this, okay? Like, I'm not going to ask you to throw your phone away. I, I love my phone. I love the fact that I can FaceTime with my parents and they can see my kids. I love that last month my nieces went to Disney World and every day I got to see how they were experiencing that. Just, they were just having a great time. I got to watch that. 
I serve on the media commission for our denomination, and so when we have our national meeting, I'm backstage helping us put the service online for missionaries to be able to watch it from places like India and France and Japan. And so technology is an awesome tool. And it's made us more connected. And I used my phone this week an incredible amount in connecting with people, letting them know that we're still having our worship night, that we're still having services this weekend. And so technology is a great tool, and it gives us connections, but there is a cost. And we need to be clear on something. That while our smartphones have enabled us to have more connections, connections aren't relationships. And we were not built for connection. We were built for relationship. That's what God built us for. And so if you would, look with me at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read some verses of Scripture there where hopefully you're going to see that God created us for relationships, that He built us for relationships. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And by the way, this is what sets us apart from the rest of creation. We are a living soul. And this means that we are made in the image of God, and we have intrinsic worth. Okay? God made us different. He made us special. In fact, it tells us that when God sat down to make man, He said to the other members of the Trinity, God the Father said to God the Son and the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our own image. And so we were created differently from the rest of creation. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put man whom He had formed. And so God has created the world, but in this beautiful world that He has created, where every time He creates something, He says He saw that it was good, that in the middle of this beautiful, good creation, He made a garden. And some of you have gardens at home where you have a beautiful yard, but in the middle of your beautiful yard, there's a beautiful garden. And it's, it's, it's especially beautiful, and you especially take care of it, and that's what God does here. And the next several verses tell us about this garden and all the things that God put in it and how it was surrounded by rivers. It was a wonderful place. But look down at verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God gave Adam the responsibility of caring for this garden. So Adam had a job. He had responsibility. He had meaningful work. God, that God had given him a calling. Now look down to verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmate for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So God made all of these animals, and then he brought them to Adam to name. And so Adam has more responsibility here in that he's naming every animal. And Adam's like, that looks like a giraffe. We're going to call it a giraffe. And God's like, sounds good. And they went from animal to animal. But, in looking at all these different animals, something was still missing. Because, but for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. And looking at all of the animals, there was still something that was missing. Now listen, I know that some of you have a dog that you treat like a child. All right? And you love that dog. That's awesome. Great. Okay? I know that some of you have a cat or 97 that you love <laughs> and care for. And I don't understand that, but that's great. Okay? 
But even if you have a strong bond with an animal, even if you have a strong connection to creation, and you love to garden in a beautiful place, you were built for something more than that. You were built for relationship. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made woman, and he brought her unto man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called a woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. I want you to really get a hold of what happens here. Because Adam has not sinned yet. He's not made a mess of his life yet. He's not broken his relationship with God yet. And so even when Adam has this strong relationship with God, even when he's living in paradise, even when he has meaningful work, and even when he has man's best friend, which is a dog, not a cat, by the way, God saw it was not good for him to be alone. God built us for relationship. And when Adam sees Eve, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And so he's already got a picture of this family unit. There's going to be more and more people. If you look over at Genesis 1.28, you see that God blesses Adam and Eve. This is when we get the first kind of overview of all the creation. God blesses Adam and Eve, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to, to fill the face of the earth. There's going to be a lot of us, is what he's saying. So God, God creates man for relationships. He loves him. He blesses him. He gives him work. And then if you look over at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, this is after Adam and Eve mess up. And the Bible tells us in those verses that God comes into the garden in the cool of the day to walk with Adam and Eve, but they're hiding. And they're hiding because they have sinned and they are ashamed. And because they have experienced shame for the first time, they realize that they're naked and they have made clothes for themselves out of fig leaves, they've covered themselves, they're hiding behind the tree and God comes calling for them by name. And so there's a lot here. And I really wanted you to see that when God created man and woman, that he created us for relationship, that he gave us responsibilities, that he loved us, that he calls us by name, and that, that, that in, in this there's relationship and there's responsibility, there's, there's purpose and there's calling. And I wanted to communicate this to, you, this to you in a way that you could easily grab a hold of and remember. And so studying this and kind of wrestling with it, came across a friend sent me this, this illustration from Matt Keller that's just so helpful, and that's, I'm going to use that to try to help you understand this. I want you to walk away with the understanding today that when God created Adam and Eve, He put them in an environment where they could flourish, like everything else that He created. He wanted them to flourish, and so He put them in an environment where they were known, loved, and challenged. They were known, loved, and challenged. And I hope that when you walk away today, you'll have this triangle in your mind and you'll realize how each of these points is so important. Now imagine with me that there's a three-legged stool, right? You need all three legs of the stool. If it's only a two-legged stool, it's going to be really hard to keep your balance. You're always going to lean in one direction or another. And we need all three of these elements 
to live in a flourishing way in our relationships. And God models this for us in the Garden of Eden, and we need to cultivate this in our families, in our marriages, in our church, in our community. Because the only way that we will flourish and grow is if we live in relationships where we are known, loved, and challenged. But a lot of times, we only get two or three of these ingredients right. And I want to show you how when there's only a couple of the ingredients in the mix, that we lean in some dangerous directions. So let's talk about what it looks like to live in an environment where we're only known and challenged. To be known is for somebody to know who we are, to not just know our name, but to know our story, know what's going on with us, know our fears, our doubts, our dreams, our aspirations. To be challenged is for someone to call us to be better, to do better, to accomplish more. And there are times where people know us and they they call us to accomplish more. They know us and they challenge us. And that pushes us to achieve. Some of you grew up in a household where your parents were all up in your business. I mean, they, they checked all your grades, right? You got a 98 and they're like, why'd you miss that question, right? They knew your friends. They knew your friends' grades. They knew your friends' friends. Like, they knew everything that was going on with you. And they were constantly challenging you to do better. And it pushed you to achieve. But while they knew everything that was going on with you, and they were constantly challenging you, you never really felt loved. And when we are known and challenged, but we don't experience love, It pushes us towards legalism. And see, legalism is when I have a bunch of rules that if I just accomplish these rules, then I'll be worthy. And if I've been highly known and highly challenged my whole life, but I haven't felt loved, I'll feel like I need to achieve because then you'll love me. If I accomplish all the rules, if I check all of the boxes, if I come home with all A's, if I get the promotion, if I advance, then you'll love me. And so some of us live our lives trying to achieve because we're hoping that we'll earn love. And some of you right now, you are living your life desperately trying to achieve because you're trying to earn the love of someone that did not give it to you. And that person might be dead. They might have already gone on to the other side, and you're still trying to get that love from them. You're still trying to live your life in a way so that your father or your mother will finally say, I'm proud of you. I love you. So we're in, we're in a culture where we're, we're highly known and we're highly challenged, but we don't feel loved. We'll be pushed to succeed, and we'll achieve but we'll be constantly achieving, hoping that on the other side of achievement is finally the love that we've been searching for. And we are disappointed again and again and again. Some of us who grow up in homes or in situations or we live in contexts where we are highly challenged and we're loved, but we aren't really known. And this is a little tricky because we feel like, well, yeah, my, my, my parents love me or my friends love me or my church loves me, but I don't really think they know me. Like, yeah, they know my name, but they don't know what's going on with me. They don't know my story. And they're calling me to do more and they're encouraging me to take steps, but I don't feel like they really know what's going on with me. And what that leads to is it leads to discouragement. Because we feel loved 
and we're being challenged, but we're a little afraid that the reason we're loved is because they don't really know what's going on with us. And we're afraid that if they do come to know, maybe they won't love us anymore. And so it pushes us to live in a hypocritical way, and we're constantly in fear of being found out. If you live without being known, you'll live detached and anxious. You'll be discouraged because you'll constantly feel like, ah, this is all really tenuous. It's, it's not for sure. It's not certain. What did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? They covered themselves up. They went and they hid. Why? Because in that moment, their shame told them, when God finds out, you're in big trouble. And so they're hiding from God. How's that work? It doesn't work. And when we live in hiding, we're, we're kind of keeping everyone distant. We don't want to be known. We're setting ourselves up for this constant discouragement and constant feeling of like, yeah, they like me, but it's because they don't really know me. And there are people that come to church and they, they, they enjoy it and they feel welcomed and loved, but they, they keep everyone at arm's reach because they're afraid that if they get into groups or if they get into relationship, then people are going to know what they're really like and then they'll be not be welcome anymore. And it gets discouraging. You see, it seems weird to us that we can feel love without being known, but if we are loved without feeling known, the love feels general or ambiguous and it can easily be lost. Because once everybody finds out, then it's gone. What we're all searching for is unconditional love. That's what we're all searching for. We're all searching for love that we experience no matter our situation or our condition. Whether or not we get ourselves together or not. And love without context is not unconditional love. You say, okay, well, obviously... We need to be known and we need to feel loved, so let's emphasize that. And like, we'll forget about being challenged. Just focus on being known and loved. That sounds awesome, right? No challenges? Just going to be known and loved. I want you to imagine Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've sinned. They broke the one rule that they were supposed to keep. They've messed up. God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day and he can't find them. Adam! Adam, where are you at? Here I am, Lord. I was hiding. Adam, why were you hiding? Because I, I broke your commandment. Oh, Adam, no worries. Let's go get some ice cream. No big deal. And Adam's going to be like, God's awesome. This is great. And they'll go get ice cream with God. A little bit later, they'll just continue to make bad choices and continue to break that command, but then there's eventually going to come a day where they'll have to be held accountable for what they've done. And a week or a month or a year or a lifetime later, when they are held to account, they're like, God, where's this coming from? What's this about? God, I thought you loved us. Remember ice cream? Let's go get ice cream. Why are you judging us? And in a situation where we are only known and loved and never challenged, we are very easily offended. Because we have never been challenged. About 10 years ago, I remember reading an article about college professors suddenly realized that they had to have tons of Kleenex in their offices 
Because a generation of students was coming to college and they've never been told they'd lost. They'd won every game they ever played. They'd always gotten a trophy. They'd always been told, you're fantastic. You're awesome. And then they got to college and the professor was the first person that ever said, like, you're not good at this. And they just cried. Well, what do you mean? I'm not good at this. Why don't you like me? Why are you so mean? And how often in our culture today do we hear things like, teachers just didn't like me. Coach hated me. That's the reason I didn't play. If coach hadn't had a problem with me, I would have been starting. We would have won the championship. And in a culture where we're never challenged, where we're never held to account, where we're never told, like, you can't do that, we are very easily offended. And right now, we've had a generation that because culture wanted them to feel loved and known, everyone wanted to make sure that we built self-esteem, which I think is a good thing, but we never challenged anyone and we never called anyone out. We live in a culture right now that only knows attention and affection without accountability, and we are easily offended. We're easily offended. Adam and Eve go and hide because they know that God's going to hold them to account. And he does. He shows up and he calls out to them, and because of their sin, they have to face punishment. But then God does something unexpected. The Bible tells us in Genesis 3 that not only does he hand them down judgment and hold them accountable for their actions, but then he offers a sacrifice of an animal that is to take the punishment of their sin, and then using the skins of those animals, he clothes them. He covers them. And so what they were ashamed of and what they were hiding, God comes and he covers. God wants to hold you accountable, but he also wants to cover you and clothe you. And the cross, the image of Jesus dying on the cross, is the ultimate picture of God holding an account for our sin. There has to be a judgment and a punishment for the wrong actions that we have taken, but also God covering us. By because Jesus took our sin, we get His righteousness. So hear this, okay? God knows you. And God loves you. God wants to hold you to account. But in His grace, He'll cover you. He shows up and He calls out to Adam and Eve so that He can cover them. He doesn't leave them just wandering in their brokenness. He doesn't leave them just wandering in their aprons made of fig leaves. That's what the word literally means in apron. How many of you have ever worn an apron? Right, Guys, it's okay. I know we have aprons we wear when we grill and we do mainly things like that. It was an apron. Anybody else ever felt very modest in just an apron? That, that doesn't work, right? I mean, a hospital gown, not a good covering. So what they had made to be a covering was not very effective. And they made it out of fig leaves. Anybody here wearing some garments made out of fig leaves? No, because it's uncomfortable. They had made themselves something to cover themselves up. It was not effective and it wasn't comfortable. But what God brings is he brings them animal skin, fur, so that they are fully covered and they have comfort. That's what God wants to do. God knows you and he knows your brokenness. He knows your sin. And he loves you anyway. 
and he wishes to cover you. At our church, we typically close out the sermon time with what is referred to as an altar call. And altar calls are strange because it really just kind of depends on the church and the the community. The church that I went to when I was a teenager and where I attended before I became a minister and moved here, people went to the altar every Sunday. At the end of the message, the pastor would say, if you would like to come forward, you can. And people would come forward and they would pray over their own sin, confess their sin to God. They would pray that God would bring healing into their lives. They would pray for people that they loved that were far from God. And so where I went to church, people were at the altar every Sunday. And then I came to Chandler and I started preaching here, and I started to like question my call of God because no one ever came to the altar. And it wasn't because nobody was responding to God. It was just in this culture, it wasn't common. Sometimes people would come forward, but it wasn't an every Sunday kind of thing. And maybe you grew up in church, or maybe you didn't, and maybe the church you grew up in didn't do altar calls, or maybe you're just, you don't know what happens up there, so you're not... An altar call is just an opportunity to respond to what it is that God is saying to us. And we don't see altar calls in the Bible. What we do see throughout Scripture is people responding to the call of God. God comes into the garden in the cool of the day, and He says, Adam, Adam. And Adam finally steps out from the tree he's hiding behind. He says, here I am, Lord. He responds to God's call. Later, God would call a man named Moses from a burning bush of all things, and Moses would say, I'll go. And he would walk away from that to go and free God's people from slavery. He was given a new purpose and a calling. Isaiah was in the temple worshiping God one day, and he saw a vision of the Lord, and the Lord was saying, Who will go for us? Who will we send? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. Jesus was walking through the villages and by the sea, and he saw a man named Peter at his fishing boat, cleaning his fishing nets, and he said, Peter, why don't you leave those nets and follow me? And Peter said, I'm with you. And so while we don't see altar calls in the Bible, we do see people responding to God's call on their life to step out of their sin, to step into a new purpose, to experience Jesus. And we're going to close out this message with an altar call, and it's just an opportunity for you to step out from where you're hiding into relationship with God. Now, what God is really concerned with is not your placement in this sanctuary, but rather your position in regards to Him. And sometimes for us, we need to take the physical posture of bowing before God or raising our hands in worship and sometimes we need to take the step of stepping out of our pew and coming to the Lord to signify that we are coming to Him. And God is less concerned about where you're at in the sanctuary in this moment. He's more concerned about where you are at in relationship to Him. And so you can call upon the Lord there at your seat. You can follow Jesus from your pew. But it might be that you need to step out and come forward to take on the physical posture of opening yourself up to accepting the call that God is giving you. Because here's what we know. That just like God showed up in the garden that day and called Adam, 
God wants to show up in every one of our lives and call us by name. And he is inviting us to step out of whatever it is that we're hiding behind so that we can experience his unconditional love, so that we can be covered by his grace.